0: Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in studio is uh, uh, Matt Walton. Thanks for joining us, Matt.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Eric.
0: And uh, Andrea Radhasanu, Uh Also, uh, thanks for being here in the studio.
2: Happy to be here.
0: We're um, we're excited to host uh, uh, Matt on our campus to, uh, to meet with our graduate students and to talk to us about some of uh, his new research uh, in... Um, in Buddhism in 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 Myanmar and uh and also to to talk about sort of non-western uh political thought uh in general so maybe i can kick things off by by um you know you, you asking you about your you're you're, a, you're an expert in um um buddhist political thought but that term itself which you've problemi- problematized uh well, I guess, what is Buddhist political thought and why is that maybe not even a thing or why is that a challenge to think through it that lens?
1: Yeah, I mean, we can <clears throat> we can sort of we can take a cue from this actually from from a lot of scholars of Southeast Asia. I always like to refer to Trevor Ling, um, who who said decades ago, look, we need to be talking about Buddhisms in the plural. Right. And yeah. And he was particularly talking about national Buddhisms at that point. Uh you know when when the study of, of Buddhism was relatively undifferentiated, um, but but certainly the, the call is apt to kind of go even further, right, and disaggregate uh, this. And and speaking about Buddhism, Buddhist political thought obviously is is um, as a broad category is just as implausible as speaking about Buddhism as a broad category. Yeah. Uh, and. Um, you know, and the, and the sort of further down we go, if, even if if we just carve out the space of Theravada Buddhist political thought, we can we can identify you know a relatively common corpus of texts. so that's that's something that's maybe useful that we can see as something that that sort of orients is, this is tradition that around. is
0: that more useful than? thinking as a as a set doctrine is to think that there are there are cortex that are
1: actually so so I, I i think it's it's one way of imagining this right okay. so 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 there's been there was actually a really uh, great edited volume um, uh, a few years ago how theravada is theravada right and and mm-hmm. theravada is like um, in some ways, the remainder uh, in terms of uh, Buddhist hierarchical discourses, because uh, Theravada is constructed as the other in many ways to Mahayana Buddhism, and and has been, uh, I, I think, very syncretic um, across South and Southeast Asia over over hundreds of years. Um, but, but it's it's clearly a manufactured category, right? I mean, most Theravadans don't think about, most Theravadan Buddhists uh, don't identify themselves as Theravadan Buddhists necessarily. That's not, for, for many people in South and Southeast Asia, not a category that matters to them. Um, what, what does it do? It's a scholarly construction that looks largely at a common um, textual core, uh, a kind of Pali uh, base a common set of practices, you know, the monkhood, the sangha looking relatively similar. But but once we move beyond that, then then uh, that space opens up significantly, right? So we think about the ways in which uh, a focus on texts, um, abstracts from, from sort of practiced Buddhism, certainly, but also... Uh, presumes a particular understanding of relationship with the text, right? So folks, uh, researchers in Thailand uh, have demonstrated that there are lots of monasteries that have uh, texts that they've never read, that they don't even know how to read, but that they understand as kind of sacred objects that orient their religious practice and belief, but not through textual study as we understand it, right? So there's there, you know, the the textual part is just one way of thinking about how does this come together? But in fact, it's much more, I think the, the impetus is much more towards disaggregation.
0: How does that compare, Andrea, to maybe the way that uh, – <clears throat> is, there, is there an analog in Western political thought for uh, Christianity or I don't know? The, um, I mean
2: with Christianity, definitely there should be an a- analog there or, or at least uh, it, it should help us understand how difficult it is to say Buddhism or how mis- misleading it would be to say Buddhism and how helpful it. I'm sure it is to say Buddhisms because you know there's Christianity has many faces, it has uh, many practices, it has many relationships, some of which are entirely incoherent vis-a-vis each other politically. So yeah, from from my perspective, I've had more experience dealing with issues of religion and politics and secularism and so and so forth in the West. But everything you say and everything I've learned from you so far about Buddhism would fit you know it seems it seems like the right thing to do to disaggregate and and look towards the text and then be uh also mindful the texts don't tell the entire story
1: well, and i think the other thing when we turn to the western canon <clears throat> um you know christianity is not the only reference point but but a sort of christian uh religious heritage is the generally unacknowledged um you know a sort of ground uh, ideological ground uh for an ideational ground for that and and so an additional sort of problematic aspect of saying Buddhist political thought is that it's named. It's named like Buddhist political thought, Islamic political thought, yeah. Confucian political thought, whereas the, the, the central category of political thought is largely Christian inflected, but also diverse in, in different ways and, and elides that kind of presence of, of religious belief, but religious belief that's obscured through language of secularism and things like that. And so Buddhism re encodes the centrality, or calling it Buddhist political thought re encodes that centrality of Western political thought in a way.
2: Well, and f- further to that, I wonder what your perspective is on being labeled a comparative political. Theorist, Um, you know, because again, that 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 suggests you're compared to something, whereas I'm just a political theorist. Right, right. You you would
0: you would would be perfectly fine not knowing anything about Buddhism. You could you could get away with it in your field, as where you couldn't get away with, right, Matt, knowing about uh, Western political. Theory. Am I right about that, that? That's
2: a neat way of putting it. I yeah. think, I think that, that shows the hierarchy of, of power. Yeah. Yeah, and, and
1: certainly how, you know, I, so my job at the University of Toronto is, is in comparative political theory, um, was hired in a faculty line for that, which is phenomenal. It demonstrates a kind of dedication and commitment on the part of, of that department to um, sort of broadening the canon and understanding that. Uh, but there certainly is a kind of bias against people who study non-Western traditions to suggest that, like you know, that, or to presume that we haven't had to do the same kind of study within the canon as well, which of course we all had to do because most of our training would have, uh, the, the, the non-Western stuff would have been almost incidental to the, to the work that we did. So, yeah, so comparative political theory, I think everybody accepts that it's a problematic misnomer. Um, and it, it, the, the term kind of largely comes out of some of the originators of this, people like Fred Dahlmeier, also Roxanne Eubin, who were who were looking to value... Sort of non-canonical and non-Western traditions, and to recognize them as constituting robust and diverse traditions of political thought, which is something that we should have been doing for a long time, right? And and this this idea of comparison c- comes out of some studies that are explicitly comparison, right? Um, Nietzsche ren Buddhist ideas on this versus Nietzsche's ideas of that, right? Um, and that's certainly one way of doing this, but it but it also doesn't have to be the only way of doing it. And so so this notion of of comparison. Um, again, a lot of, of, of folks who who are who are labeled as comparative political theorists or non-Western political theorists um, uh, chafe a little bit because we see that it reencodes the West. It reencodes the kind of that central thing, as I as, as I've said before, um, but also seems to highlight the comparative component that there has to be this explicit. Um, you know one thing and another thing and 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 it has to be across traditions in some sort of meaningful way and what is a tradition and how have we done that and so a lot of us resist that yet um are happy to kind of take any path that offers offers (laughs) a you know a a recognition of 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 these um you know diverse traditions of of political thought within a kind of western canonical space
2: well and a follow-up question i have to that or uh, path of thinking through is I mean there's the problematic nature of comparing it to something as if it weren't enough on its own but then there's the practical consideration that perhaps you do have to employ comparative modes of analysis when you are teaching and speaking to students in a western context you know so if 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 there's a concept like suffering or anatta or you know impermanence and so forth are you you are you going to Is it helpful to, or is it does it perpetuate sort of Western centric problems when you compare every concept that you need to explain in Buddhism to some Western Western idea, or is it just simply necessary because otherwise no one would know what you're talking about from their own limited perspective? Of
1: course, yeah, and I and I think there's a necessary tacking back and forth there, right? That that no one seems to have perfected or decided within this subfield what's what's the best way to do it, but. Um, but obviously, you know, there are those of us who've done lots of research within a particular tradition or language or, or culture, um, uh, who we speak to people within that space. Many of us also you know, feel the need to or the desire to speak to, to people in, in a kind of Western academic context as well. And in doing that, we need to provide some sort of contextual understanding. Um, so you know, in, my, in my book on Burmese Buddhist political thought, I, I try to establish about a half, maybe like a dozen terms in Burmese that I use throughout where I say, look, I'm going to provide a kind of robust explanation of how I th- think we should understand these, and then I'm not going to give translations of them because I don't want you to think about, you know, parahita as social welfare. I want you to think about it as parahita, having understood what yeah. this means, right? Um, and that that's, you know, there's a negotiation there with with readers to to see whether they're going to come along. And it's, the same thing applies to... Uh, the classroom as well is—is is to to what degree we, um, you know, we have to provide that sort of background. I I usually make a practice in a lot of my talks. I did it in my job talks when I was on the market of handing out vocab sheets to people and, um, and trying to kind of explain these terms, you know, th- these ideas on their own terms that then allows me to use it in context and people can bring their own um sort of understandings to it. I, the one thing I would add there is. Uh, there are some different views in within the field of comparative political theory on how we should do these comparisons, right? And and um, so some theorists like uh, Lee Jenko uh, would would argue that are that merely including, as she would say, sort of non-Western voices in a conversation is not sufficient, precisely because. Um, The methods that we use for comparison, the methods that we use, even if we're not speaking in translation, we're still doing analytical work and interpretive work for that. Um, Those obscure the the kind of the context on, on their own terms. And so she advocates for a kind of methodological adoption from non-Western context as well to sort of look at well how how did Chinese political theorists in a particular era conduct their own versions of comparison and and what can we learn from that and so there's a there's a methodological pluralism that is also seeking to kind of push beyond the boundaries of of, of a Western canon too.
0: How representative Andrea is your so so you run a forum on and program on comparative political thought or or political theory that you know and you're reaching outside to you know helping bring Matt to campus to to talk about um, Buddhist political thought. Is is that a growing sentiment in um, in political theory in general that we really should that that's that's it's it's no longer sufficient to to stay in the Western canon? Is that a marginal view? Is that I mean, where do you what where is the discipline going?
2: I hope it's a growing view. <laughs> uh, the I mean, I feel that if it's possible to do it within the context of Something called the Tocqueville Forum, which is what I run. I think it should be possible in 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 any in, in many other uh, fora that are not a you know that that are more forgiving. Because if Tocqueville is an interesting character as a as a commentator on a tradition that's not his, right? In a sense, so he came to America in the eighteen thirties, observed America, decided what democracy and American democracy specifically is as a Frenchman. Wrote a giant book on it, we, and Americans really took that to heart as as a as a description of their of their situation. So, I take I take the fact that that happened um, as a, as freedom to align with uh, you know I, I think far all, all sorts. Of, there may be some problematic things about what he said. There may be some problematic uh, things about his gaze as a noble Frenchman and so forth. But at the same time, I mean, you can't help but learn. You know from um from all sorts of comparisons so i think that you know this is exactly what's called for if we're going to talk about uh, issues of democracy and and in a forum like mine which normally pri- privileges you know western dialogues and western uh polities you know i think i think it's absolutely called for to to broaden that and think about the issues um
1: and beyond. I, <clears throat> I like thinking of Tocqueville in in that way too I mean you know in a way it creates space for um, you know the work of me a kind of a white American to be studying you know Buddhism and politics in in a place like Myanmar with Burmese interlocutors uh, and and with you know people around the world for that um, and and it also it also creates space for us to kind of critically engage with those encounters, right? And the assumptions within those encounters, the power dynamics within those encounters, uh, you know, it, obviously anybody working in Southeast Asian Asia uh, struggles with um, the, the effects of, like, Orientalist discourse, which hasn't just structured our own scholarly thinking on this, but which, you know, I, we encounter a lot in terms of the way that people understand their religions in Southeast Asia or their religious identities, too. And those aren't just because they're influenced by you know, in terms of Buddhism, a kind of polytext society notion of what Buddhism is um, doesn't mean that they're not genuine, doesn't mean that they're wrong, just means that they're one sort of set of subjectivities around what it would mean to be Buddhist. And it's part of the modern field there. And that's part of what we should engage with, but also not privilege at the same time. So we can problematize those encounters. And I I like the idea of, you know, Tocqueville's writing and the reception of it and the reiteration of it as, as a way of thinking about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, he 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 definitely was accused of an elitist point of view, right? His most of his encounters were with a, elite Americans on the East Coast. He gave it his best to include other voices, but it it you know it quite it wasn't good enough. Um, but that th- we learned from that as well from the shortcomings,
0: and maybe doubly so in 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 Myanmar, where you know it was until recently argued like should we be even be engaging with Myanmar and like so it's like. Double duty, like yes and yes. Outsiders can and uh, should as well. Like we we benefit in the exchange. Um, maybe it's maybe it's useful for our listeners to have a, a quick example of what we're talking about here. Um, you had us read some uh, uh, Aung San and his view of politics in uh, in in Burma. Um, maybe give us a, a a sample of kind of the the how are we to how are we to think about someone like Aung San and maybe obviously. Who, who this person is and, and how his politics work and Buddhism infuses those.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Amsan generally understood to be sort of one of the fa- forefathers of Burmese independence. He, um, he was a student activist and an uh, active figure in, in the Thakin movement, um, which was kind of seeking to reclaim uh, a title that the British had had arrogated to themselves, kind of akin to master, and to say nope, the Burmese are the masters in this case. Uh, sort of the, the beginnings of the nationalist movement there. He uh, allied himself and his colleagues with the Japanese to um, to push the British out of Burma. Then uh, decided that in fact the independence that Japanese were gi- giving was not independence at all. Realigned himself with the British and then led the push for uh, independence from um, from Britain. Uh, also was assassinated uh, just months before. Um, Burma achieved independence in 1948. So I yeah I love I I love reading Aung San as a political theorist. Um, most of what we read and mo- most of what Burmese people read are his speeches, aphorisms, and, and biographies of Aung San. All of which are important. Um, but uh, one of the things that I think reading Aung San's work does is it kind of. Um, it it shifts the it shifts the the common portrayal of him as like a secular political leader. And certain so, you know, I've argued it's absolutely the case that Aung San was arguing for a secular state, right? A state that did not have an official religion. What?
0: Are, are are Burmese interpreters or or Western interpreters pushing a more secular interpretation of him? So
1: I'd say I'd say that largely comes from Western interpreters. That okay. comes from you know sort of post-colonial. Right. He's a modern British
0: nationalist. Figure. He's a modern yeah. nationalist, but that is yeah.
1: something that a lot of Burmese have taken up, mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. since the 1980s, at least. Uh, and 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 it wasn't. It was also present in the 1940s too, because um, there was this sense. So Alicia Turner tells this story in a fantastic way that 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 the. That The Burmese nationalist struggle wasn't two decades of religious nationalism, Buddhist nationalism, and then two decades of secular nationalism. It was, in fact, two decades of activism to protect Buddhism. And then that sort of coalesced into what was an emerging national national and nationalist identity. Um, But even even in the 1930s and 40s, you had a lot of Burmese nationalists kind of um, looking back and seeing that, Buddhist-oriented period as having been destructive or not productive or anything like that. And so claiming Aung San as a kind of secular nationalist is a way of prioritizing that. In the contemporary period, it's a way of talking back to Mabatha and similar Buddhist nationalist groups to say, no, this isn't the state that Aung San wanted. He didn't want Buddhism and religion to be destructive in this case. But if if we read Aung San... Um, we see how much he drew from Buddhist ideas and narratives and how much his socialism um, and his economic and political critiques of, of capitalism and of imperialism were inflected by Buddhist ideas. And so that was one of the things that I wanted um, your group of students to read is, is to look at um, at a, at a, a, the Aganya Sutta, one of the suttas from the, the Pali texts, and the way in which Aung San took that story and told it and kind of gave it a more explicitly anti-capitalist framing, but retained a lot of the more Buddhist moral elements of it, right? He, he wanted to show how... Um, the justifications of, of capitalism in Myanmar in the 1930s and 40s, in Burma in the 1930s and 40s, uh, were often done in these karmic terms, right? To say, well, you're, you know, you're poor and because you must have done something bad in your previous life, and I'm rich because I must have done good things in my previous life, so there's nothing we can really do about it. And he said, nope, not true at all. If we understand, you know, sort of karma in, in, a, in its fuller sense, um, that's just a justification for what is an unjust social and economic system so I, I think putting him in that context is really crucial and and I, I mentioned to, to some of your students today that that um, that I think actually the English translation that I had you read is a little bit problematic because it removes a lot of that context and so if you don't if you don't get it if you can't read it in the Burmese you don't know what those resonances are
0: it's, it's kind of an amazing Venn diagram of like you know that that uh, you know a, a Marxist view of property versus, uh, uh, it being problematic and do a, a Buddhist view of possessions. And like, this is a, this is a kind of a kind of fascinating, uh, uh, point where those intersect and then are martialized to, to make a, make a, um, assertions about, um, political identity and and, and Buddhism in, in Myanmar. It was, it was really fascinating.
1: Yeah. And it's, and, and I find myself speaking back a lot against, you know some previous generations of of political scientists, largely who who were not just sort of coding Aung San as a secular nationalist, as opposed to somebody like who knew the country's first prime minister, who is always understood to be this complicated Buddhist figure, um, but but also who have been largely dismissive of Burmese and other Southeast Asian uh sort of religio marxist discourses right and and have said look these are all derivative of like fabian literature and things like that or they're based on misunderstandings and and I think I mean that's a that's a deeply racist and flawed view number 1 but it it it, it doesn't it sort of pushes our attention away from what should be a really um, robust and, and and fertile area of study. And I think some people have done that in, in island Southeast Asia, um, a little bit more in the Thai context. I think we understand sort of Thai iterations of leftist thought. But in Burma, it's it's a largely untouched um, uh, set of literature, speeches and writings and things like that. And I think there's there's a lot to unpack there.
2: I mean, if I can add to I too just think it was fascinating to, for me, to add to you know my Western knowledge of Marxism and other leftist critiques of property and so forth to add this um, Buddhist view, and not not as a, a token representation of what other people say about it, but in fact to strengthen an understanding of the basic concepts. You know of 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 this idea of of too much of greed and you know the the flaws with with that sort of thinking. You know, I a helped.
0: moral component to the to the Marxism that sometimes gets taken out or of or, right. right or?
2: Well, or or that there you can come at a, a similar, a yeah. surprisingly similar critique of of from vastly different points of view. I think that that adds a dimension to just thinking through this the theoretical uh, point. You but, know, it, it, it it's not it's not. Um, you know, a by the by, it, it seems to be something that we, we if, if it's relevant in, in multiple cultures, in, in as a mode of thinking uh, and addressing sort of moral issues, that gives it much more, um, much more weight, much more heft to it.
1: Yeah, and it, and it should be our our sort of interests as academics, right, to see this as a as a kind of globally diverse and inflected field. I mean, we look just with sticking with the example of Marxism, the way in which it has you know, largely been sort of taken up and developed in East Asia in in Chinese discourse, right? I mean, obviously there are lots of uh, ac- academics in, in Europe and in, in North America who still think with Marxist ideas but but thinking about the d- the development of this this that really took off right tw- in the second half of the 20th century in, in China. And so these are global discourses that get adapted and, and that get sort of given primacy in different parts of the world over different different times. And I think we, we do need to recognize that. The other weird component of this that that I always find both kind of troubling and, Potentially exciting in a place like Burma is is that the the discourse from the 30s to the 50s about leftism and Buddhism and and the interactions between the two and the prioritization of of one over the other uh, were vibrant and were fun and exciting and mapped on to you know uh, um, uh, transnational conversations as well uh, and then then the military took over in 62 and implemented a kind of socialist economic policy that that was largely understood to have failed by the time by the 1990s now. What that has meant for contemporary Myanmar is that there is a kind of deep um, social antipathy to leftist language and ideas, right? So socialist and communist ideas, um, despite the fact that some of the most pressing political issues, we think about um, land rights, we think about workers' rights, we think about the the dams and, and things like that those would naturally be expressed in these kind of leftist solidarity, critique of capitalism, of neo-imperialism, things like that. That's the natural conceptual language for that. And that's not available to people in, in Myanmar today because of this stigma attached to it. And so it's a fascinating way to think about how people are expressing these, I think, leftist ideological ideas and solidarities by having to create new kinds of discourses, and some of those come from Buddhism, some of those come from uh, from from lots of different traditions there. And to me, that's an exciting space, um, but also one that's perplexing in terms of of the logical sort of connections you'd find there.
0: Well, I, as a, as a as a graduate student reading like the Burmese Way to Socialism, like the you know sort of. Infamous document by the military government about their, their path, which you know failed ultimately. The that that I remember thinking like, well, "This is just crazy that you know that that is that's pulled out of thin air and has no like it." Uh, but it makes me think like, though those discourses were um, were obviously. I just never read them into Aung San or to to some of the, those 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 currents of thought that that were there. I just you know thought it was sort of a, a naked appropriation by them uh, that that it was without and it, you know and it it could have eventuated in that. But but you're right. It under it undermines any of the kind of uh, in, maybe in, in similar to in Indonesian political thought where where uh, any any left of center discourse is now. Um, completely tabooed and and just it's 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 you know plutonium you can't even touch it yeah, yeah.
1: and it cl- but it closes off all those yeah. opportunities for political discourse and for ideology and, and for activism as well which i think is is a kind of key grounded nature of what a lot of us do in okay. um but doesn't always get recognized that way
0: In today's in today's discussion, you um, talked about a, a, a is it fair to say controversial organization uh, in in Myanmar that is the uh, Mabata um, and and its and its place in Buddhist nationalism in, in Myanmar. Um, first of all, what is it, and um, why is it problematic uh, in in the way we think about Myanmar?
1: Yeah, so Mabatha so is the is the shorthand, uh, the Burmese sort of acronym for a group called Amyobadathadana Ye Apue, which I roughly translate as the Organization for the Protection of Race and Religion. Um, I think they translate it as the Patriotic Myanmar Association. Um, but so uh, this was a group that was founded in 2013. Uh, it was founded largely as a kind of central Buddhist uh, authority response to the 969 movement that had been kind of popular at the end of 2012 into 2013, uh, which was a largely decentralized kind of um, anti-Muslim boycott and, and kind of anti-Muslim uh, discourse at that point. and And the The story that's told is that a bunch of senior monks said, "Oh, we don't really like the way this looks for Buddhism. So, but we don't. We aren't against this idea of protecting Buddhism. So, let's try to institutionalize this in a, in a kind of more uh, centralized and legitimate way. And so that's how Mabatha came to be. Um, they're largely understood to be a kind of Buddhist nationalist group." Um, and that's that's the label that most people give them. That's the label that some of them give themselves. This this idea, this, this notion, we, we translate it as race and religion, um, it's a myo, bada, and thadhana. And myo is this kind of vague identity referent that is ethnicity in some cases, nationality in some cases, religion in other cases. Um, bada also refers to religion, but a little more inclusive. And then thadhana is the Burmese rendering of the Pali word sasana, which refers specifically to the Buddhist um, Religion. And so, so, you know, my talk today was trying to kind of problematize the, the un, uncomplicated sort of Buddhist nationalism uh, uh, label given to Mabatha to suggest that, look, the people involved in this movement have, have different national identities, different understandings of what it means to be Myanmar or primarily an ethnic uh, minority, ethnic identity. They have different notions of how and whether religion is implicated in, in kind of national identity, too. Um, They have different prioritizations of what is it that we're protecting. Are we protecting Myanmar, the country? Are we protecting some inchoate version of the national community? Are we protecting the religion primarily? Right. These different prioritizations. And so, um, you know, while Mabatha has been implicated correctly in a lot of the anti-Muslim violence and sentiment, one of the things that our research project has, has shown and tried to argue is that that in a lot of cases people are encountering them through activities that are designed solely to support and propagate Buddhism um, and they're just they're reinforcing right or just um, uh, or or just expanding, work that people are already doing at local levels, uh, you know, donation groups, monastic uh, groups to support monks, um, groups that will organize to help after natural disasters, uh, legal aid groups, all these kinds of things, that's part of this Mabatha network, and it's part of what provides a wide sense of appeal to a lot of people, right? It doesn't mean the anti-Muslim component is not there, um, but it but it means that, that the way people encounter this group and they, that they find the appeal... And the way that it speaks to some of their anxieties about Buddhism during this period uh, is something that we need to kind of detach from from this this label of Buddhist nationalism. How is
0: how is religion uh, legally prescribed in in politics in Myanmar? What what role um, are is are monks able to play in 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 politics and 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 vice versa? Religion in in, in schools in the What is the what's the legal Landscape
1: yeah, so so buddhism is not the official religion um, and there there were one of the One of the strong arguments that lots of uh, Burmese people Buddhist and non-Buddhist make uh, against having Buddhism as, as the national religion is uh, refers back to the late 1950s where UNU kind of made a push for that uh, and It seemed to result it seemed to be one of the things that agitated non-Buddhist ethnic minorities obviously um, and was one of the contributing factors to the sort of uh, the military's level of discomfort that, that led to the coup. So that, that history is very much there when people think about it. Um, even though it's not the state religion, the Constitution recognizes the sort of special place of Buddhism, mentions it particularly. Uh, my colleague, Iselin Friedland has, has argued that this, among other factors, functionally makes Buddhism the state religion. Uh, and so that's, that's an important kind of set of considerations there. Um, but... There are other legal provisions that that kind of speak to the uh, mixture of religion and politics, which is an incredibly vague uh, set of statutes. So the electoral law includes that, and that's why we saw in the lead-up to the 2015 election um, some monks who would make speeches or give sermons advocating for a particular uh, political candidate, and then uh, Mabatha officials would walk it back and say, well, that's a personal view, let's let's not... um, let's not charge the organization with with uh, with violating election law for that. Um, and monks have uh, have never had the franchise in in Burma, Myanmar, um, contrary to Sri Lanka and some other places and and there's not there doesn't really seem to be sort of strong public appetite for that but but as I said in the talk, uh, you know I think we we need to be paying attention to not only the long history of of monastic political involvement in different sorts of ways, whether that was advisors to the king, or leading revolutions, or just being involved in the day-to-day politics in their villages or their regions, but also uh, the ways in which certainly for the last ten to fifteen years, monks have been advocating what we might call sort of quintessentially modern forms of political engagement. So you know, monks who who start to um, start to do donation campaigns to build you know uh, um, shelters to house hiv positive orphans or things like that and 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 monks who engage in a lot more like internet activism and things like that and so the space of what constitutes political activism and what constitutes appropriate political activism for monks given their uh their sort of moral injunctions and moral duties that's that's an open question
0: is it is it um is it wrong then to see it as a as a a new gesture entry into politics. I mean, cause one, one interpretation is the sort of, of the, you know, Burmese administrative cycles, Angtman Lieberman kind of like that. this has been a, this has been a, this has been a a major animating force or that's true or not in, in, in Burmese history. Uh, the young men, Buddhist association of, you know, that you talked about that, that them being a, uh, really, really potent part of how the national nationalism coalesces, uh, is it, is it less rare than we think? I mean, and not to sort of timeless Myanmar that it, it will always infuse, but because um, I, I was thinking in, in my head, I was like, oh, that's that's doesn't fit in Myanmar. But then as I thought back historically, like, well, there's plenty of antecedents. Am I wrong about that? No,
1: I don't think you're wrong. I think, I mean, certainly the the idea that, or the the common sort of claim that monks and politics don't mix has never been empirically true, right? <laughs> what does seem to be distinct is 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 maybe uh, kind of for burma at least a, a largely 20th century occurrence and so i think we can point not just to alicia's work but also to eric braun's work on lady Sayadaw, who marks these these moments and this is what yuliana schober has called the laicization uh, of 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 burmese buddhism and of, of broadly of southeast asian buddhism where um where crises in monastic leadership um, and and in political leadership in a lot of these places meant that lay people stepped in to uh, play a a greater and more particular role in the the defense and, and the protection of of the Sasana of the Buddhist community right and so they and and this didn't just mean sort of forming nationalist organizations this meant um you know learning the philosophical scriptures and and doing all these sorts of things that had been previously largely reserved for monks right and so so that's where the field changed um and and where 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 the field of activity kind of changed and um, you know, some folks, Benedict de la Perrier, an anthropologist who works on on religion in Myanmar, has talked about the kind of particular anxieties that monks have in the contemporary world of getting displaced as conduits between sort of moral and political power, um, and I think that's a that's a compelling um, argument and and place to look. But then, but then also the, the what, what, is, what is again different um, in the last 10 to 15 years as opposed to sort of turn-of-the-century kind of uh, participatory uh, practices um, is, is the emergence of, uh, of monks within new media spaces, right? I mean, these are all kind of ways of promoting monastic subjectivities and, and, and pushing the boundaries of those monastic subjectivities that we're only kind of starting to, to come to terms with.
0: Yeah, the song. I haven't had Facebook for forever, so.
1: <laughs> and I don't I, I don't. I really. You know, we don't like without saying, yeah, social media has changed everything, or without suggesting no. that it's it's you know a, a, a cause of of these things in in Myanmar. There does seem to be um, a sort of qualitative distinction in terms of the the accessibility that people have to monks through that, and to, and to these, and that monks can kind of reach these broader audiences, and and their, They're merging online and offline conversations and activism in in, in really fascinating ways. That does it does represent a qualitative shift. I think.
2: You know what I this is fascinating to me for a number of reasons, but one. Cognate that I have with with that conversation is 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 the or the one one um, frame is the is again the Christian one, and I am um, a theorist of the Enlightenment much of the time. So the Enlightenment hated nothing more than Christian monks. You know, the monasteries were the absolute end of the world in terms of they were the anti Enlightenment. Uh, Montesquieu praised Henry the Eighth for. Uh, destroying all the monasteries (laughs) and he was usually nice about things as compared to say Rousseau who thought a, a, a good Christian could not also be a good citizen and so forth so this is really something the monastic tradition in Burma and Southeast Asia being very much of a piece of with with politics even though one might argue that some of the Political thought of of Buddhism or Buddhisms would lead to something like detachment for politics as well. So I'm in the case of Christianity, arguably that's what happened, even though Christianity as such obviously had a, a very large political stake. Yep. But the the monasteries really did at least have this high reputation for being absolutely worthless and for, that Western for this trope, world that, or I'm things. Like, well, yeah,
0: yeah, they just it's a detachment. So I'm just I'm really yeah.
2: curious yeah. about
1: that yeah, with respect and, to this. And and that's 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 a um, <clears throat> a fraught space in terms of Burmese public discourse, right? So. Uh, certainly, there's always been, from uh, the kind of political leadership, uh, you, you mentioned, Eric, the, the sort of Anthwin lieberman kind of debates there, the, the question of an, a slightly antagonistic relationship between political authorities and, and monks, and it was understood in the kind of classical uh, arrangement of the state that the king would would play a role in, in um, purifying uh, the sangha. But, you know, it's always been the case that the lay people who support the monks also know all the monks dirty laundry right and they and and but that's never that's that can't be public knowledge precisely because so much is riding on the sort of perceived purity of the monkhood as a whole right and, but but that's a discourse that's that's it's it started to open up space right and some of it comes from monks being willing to talk about to criticize themselves and, and their own institutions whether that's the monkhood and the monastery and in general, or the monastic authorities, whether it's it's uh, calls for like modernizing the monkhood in terms of its internal practices, like democratizing that, or you know thinking more in, in more in more of a kind of social media global kind of way, it includes all of those, but it also includes um, slightly slightly more space to talk about these these um, the sort of seedy underbelly of this, right? The abuse that happens, and and to and and people wonder. How can we address this knowing that they have to address it in a way that doesn't sort of um, fatally undercut uh, the sort of moral arguments of of Buddhism and and the moral standing necessarily of the Sangha as as this sort of place and and that, you know, the, the the layization of Buddhism that happened at the at the end of the twentieth from the kind of middle of the of the nineteenth century into the twentieth century um, was not something that fundamentally displaced the the monkhood, right? I mean, it, it sort of expanded the field of of activity here, um, and I think maintaining that balance, where you know Theravada Buddhists do not want to get rid of this field of merit, this field of sort of moral authority, of educational authority, everything like that, um, that's a, that's a challenging space, right? And and so I think we haven't seen the kind of critical discourse that, um, that you know, certainly Enlightenment thought represented uh, with regard to Christian monks. But, um, yeah, if you if you watch this space on, on T-Circle, our, our um, Burma blog that was at Oxford and now has moved uh, to the University of Toronto, I think in the next couple of weeks we'll be publishing a piece by a, a brave young Burmese uh, critic of of Buddhism um, who is who is both critical of this idea that, like, all we need to fix Buddhist nationalism and anti-Muslim sentiment is good Buddhists, whatever that might be, but who also has a lot of these institutional critiques about Buddhism and, and the monkhood as well. So um, that, that'll that be an interesting piece for, for people to read.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: What do um, what do Buddhist nationalists in Myanmar like uh, Mabata have to say about uh, religion and race a, a, in terms of identity? In Because that becomes... Per, particularly fraught in the rohingya situation
1: yeah so so um the you know the the interconnections between these these three categories in mabatha's name that largely map on to maybe ethnicity or national identity um and that this word amyo is sometimes translated as race too and then and then the religion components i mean this is this is a really diff- diffuse space but but it it it's, it can become very effectively kind of focused when it comes to a common exclusion, right? And I think this is what's happened uh, largely for the Rohingya, that, that, they, that Rohingya are othered in almost every way possible in Myanmar. So certainly they're not Buddhist, um, and they also are an ethnic group that has... Um, is not formally recognized by the state and has has had formal recognition in the past in other ways, um, but they're not part of this this sort of um, uh, made up group of or made up set of one hundred and thirty five ethnicities. Um, they also are not recognized in in terms of another uh, word that's used to describe what we might call kind of indigeneity in Myanmar, which is tha. And Nick Cheeseman has a phenomenal piece about about the um, the kind of paradox here that. That from, you know, over the last few decades, he charts what we could call the tayintha of citizenship and national belonging discourse in, in Myanmar, which is, has made it, this is the category that you have to belong to, mm. and it, to, to be recognized as a citizen. But it's precisely Rohingya efforts to be recognized in that way that becomes so threatening to um, to people who are trying to police those borders. And, and, you know, this obviously maps on to phenotype and skin color as well, uh, because, you um, you know, while while you hear lots of people in Myanmar who can who say that they can tell you, you know, who's a, who's a Rohingya, who's a Bengali, who's a you yeah. know who's an Indian, and that's uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but there is a um, there's a market bias against people with darker skin uh, that we see particularly in Rakhine State, but that um, we also see across the country, and so all these things kind of map together, and. It's allowed what, what I described in today's talk as a much more kind of diffuse and fractured set of religious national identities under the Mabatha umbrella to come together in this moment where there's a common excluded population to say, yeah, even though we don't all agree that we're the same sort of ethnic nationality, let's just take care of this group that we can all agree is, is not part of this community. And so that's, that's been, I mean, that's probably strengthened the cohesion of, of a Buddhist nationalist movement in this particular moment. Um, without necessarily, uh, w- but but has papered over uh, some of those distinctions as well.
0: Uh, how are how are monks negotiating? Um, their role in society through through parhita through through charity because I found that pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, so so this idea of parahita is is longstanding. I mean, it's a word that's existed for a long time. It's a practice that's existed for a long time that just refers to sort of collective welfare or social welfare. And these these you know these are village based practices, you know, neighborhood based practices. Um, right
0: in the absence of a functioning state, they they're they're even essential. Like well,
1: well and and, is, yeah. and so this is you know so so the person doing doing the best work along those lines is Gerard McCarthy, who's recently finished his PhD at the ANU, who charts the um, the rise of these prahita organizations through the the nineteen nineties into the present, in particular when you had this sort of not, a state that was was strangely absent in certain ways, but also um, uh, you know, turning into a kind of liberal capitalist state as well, and and so privatizing, starting to privatize some of these activities, and and um, he he notes a kind of a, a strong moral discourse that goes along with it, that linked um, that linked local populations to cronies and other people who were starting to become the kind of paragons of you know 1990s uh, privatization in in Burma. Um, but I think, I mean, one thing that's important to talk about in terms of Parahita is that I uh, think that we heard a lot from Buddhists in, in Burma after the 2008 Cyclone Nargis was uh, a lot of Buddhists who did relief work then um, saw that this work was institutionalized by Christian and Muslim charities locally and international groups in ways that had never been institutionalized in, uh, among Buddhists. And and that created this, this discourse that, that was kind of strong in some ways to say, yeah, we need to do more of this, right? Um, it didn't always recognize that that had been part of the Buddhist social fabric for a long time and localized,
0: right? As you pointed out, you, 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 people give to the monks. Yeah, people uh, give to the yeah. monks,
1: and that's always been a part of it. But also, people provide for each other, right? I mean, they're, they're, yeah. and I don't mean to idealize that, but that, that 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 was a practice there. And and what's what's interesting now are the ways in which um, you know Buddhist monks have been adopting these ideas. So so the logic of of dana of donation had always been. Uh, predominantly to say that you you wanted to give to a person who was uh, the sort of highest field of merit that you could, right? So the, the the moral standing of the individual. So it was a monk who was widely recognized or, you know, had memorized all the scriptures or whatever, and that that was going to enhance not just the sort of material um, effectiveness of, of your donation, but also uh, the karmic uh, um, uh, Return on it for you, and and what that is that what that meant in practice was that people were not all that interested in you know giving to homeless shelters or giving to other kind of um, uh, oppressed communities or underprivileged. I don't communities. make near
0: as much merit out of that. No, you yet. wouldn't. I mean, the yeah. idea is like, yeah. yeah,
1: this this kid on the street, right? Um, why would I give him money? That's not going to bring me anything. That's not that's not why we give as Buddhists. And that that sounds like I mean, when I put it in that way, it's a kind of stark sort of rude heartless sort of thing but it has a lot of like moral justification the moral justification is to say um i I give to these fields of merit because because i know that there are better material effects and better broad moral effects not just not just for me as a donor but but for the world in general right but but that's the nicer way of putting that logic at least um but what we're what we've seen over the last I think at least ten to fifteen years is is a shift in some of those patterns of giving, where prominent political figures, but certainly prominent monks, have argued for the validity um, of these kind of social projects, right? And and have have made these arguments in Buddhist terms, in karmic terms, to say this this is what you should be doing. You should be helping people who need it, not giving another set of robes to this monk who certainly doesn't need it. And so so that's that's been an interesting kind of Uh, shift there but that's also really relevant for thinking about um the field of activity of a kind of localized moral charitable activity that has already been in existence and that Mabatha effectively grafted itself onto so you have all these local donation networks and um you know blood drive groups and whatever does it it sounds like an NGO yeah so I mean so these part of the argument um you know that, that some people have said is 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 that civil society has existed for decades in Myanmar in this sort of form, right? Uh, not not allowed to exist as civil society or as NGOs, but many of these local groups and networks transitioned into formal NGOs yeah. and CBOs um, after 2010 or after 2008. And, uh, and Ma Tha, in a lot of ways, we should recognize as functioning in that space, right? I mean, as, as hostile to what they see as the kind of Western NGO model, um, but interestingly enough, to bring it back to to Tocqueville and the kind of civil society discourse that uh, you know that, that developed from from some of his work, if we think about if we think about civil society as this space that brings people together outside of the kind of explicitly political electoral realm to identify shared interests, to mobilize in certain ways, to access the political realm, and that brings people together across identity mm-hmm. boundaries. Um, Mamatha has certainly, you know, excluded people on some lines, but has also brought people together across ethnic lines, across lines of class and geography in Myanmar. I mean, they are they are doing some of that coming together work of civil society as well. And, and they, um, they, they fit really into this sort of weird uncivil society discourse that kind of came out of right. this idea that, oh, actually... Yeah, we, we, we don't want to call those groups civil society because they're doing the things that we say they do, but they're doing it in undemocratic ways. So let's not call them that, right? Let's call them something else. But Mabatha is doing that, right? And, and that's not meant to valorize them. That's just to say, like, these groups that we think of as being exclusionary on some angles are also these, these connectors. They're right. They are bringing people together and forging common identities along some axes
2: yeah it makes me wonder if you could say a little bit more about why you did you did mention that they argue or they make they they do this based in part on uh, buddhist premises. so i just i wonder how important that is the ideational component you know and or and if there are other kinds of things that drove them to this sort of n g o model
1: yeah i i mean that's a great question and um i mean it, the even within the leadership and the kind of intellectual ideological leadership of mabatha you get a different sense of of what the hierarchy is of configurations of of identity right whether religious or national or ethnic and then also the configurations of of um social concerns or political concerns right do do we think that what we're protecting is um Buddhism as an entity or do we think that what we're protecting is some sort of Myanmar nation right and what's the relationship of that Myanmar nation to the boundaries of the nation state right I mean these these are these are I think uh, um, you know important distinctions among among mabatha ideologists in some ways I imagine though that that you know mabatha actors sort of stumbled into this this is this is what organizing looks like in Myanmar today it is. Um, you know, it's, it's putting things out on Facebook it is uh, talking about this in, in sort of broad terms right um, and so they're using they're not instrumentally using a, a Buddhist framing that's how they understand this right and so uh, but, but the methods I think of bringing people together uh, you know I'm discussing this in terms of civil society now but, but if we look back at the late 19th century and early 20th century in Burma or even earlier in Sri Lanka these these were the connections right i mean this was forming a kind of a political consciousness but it but in all those cases a kind of religio political consciousness as well and and you'd use those same networks you'd use the um the educational networks you'd use the local you know groups that got together every week to chant or to clean the temple and 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 you'd mobilize them in in different ways uh, and you'd start to see them not just as a kind of shared a community of shared co-religionists but also a kind of national identity, a sort of political
2: identity. But just to push it a bit further, I mean, you can see a version of politicization of 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 monks that would be more elite-driven, right? This seems to be uh, have this like civil society legs. Would you be able to explain that in terms of spe- the specifics or particulars of, of Burma? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I think we
1: so. There are certainly some prominent urban monks who kind of play a, a big role in that and, and who, who we we often think of, we sort of Western analysts, but even sort of Burmese media analysts, uh, kind of prioritize as the faces of Mabatha and the spokespeople of Mabatha. And certainly they've received the most press. Uh, some of them have been the most controversial. Um, but... That's not the strength of Mabatha. And I think they actually would, some of them, Uruathu is probably a little too uh, egocentric to acknowledge this, but some of them would say, that's not what Mabatha is. It's not me as a monk giving these sermons. It's this network. It's the strength of these organizations. And that is. And I would agree with that. I mean, it's it's because these predated Mabatha, they're going to outlast Mabatha, um, and you know we keep saying Mabatha, right? It's 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 very few of these chapters are actually named Mabatha. It's already been going through these transformations of rebranding and renaming and things like that. And so so I think that that it is precisely because these sorts of activities have always been embedded in local spaces and local communities um, that makes the appeal so strong, um, and and that also allows people to participate in them without necessarily feeling like they are endorsing the Mabatha project that with all of its sort of anti-Muslim components as as well
0: What's the relationship between? Uh, the M- Mabatha the um, National League for Democracy the ruling party and and the Tatmada the the, the military um, How is that how has that evolved over time?
1: Yeah, certainly the, you know in, in the lead-up to the 2015 election when lots of Prominent Mabatha monks were coming out against the NLD in support of the USDP. Um, NLD folks were critical, but also, I think, cowed and scared. I mean, you know, we saw how hmm. uh, the NLD shamefully didn't nominate a single Muslim candidate in that elections. And, and NLD leadership said, look, we, we're, we're scared, right? We, we know how we're going to get attacked if we do that. That's
0: a base that you have to play to.
1: Yeah, it's a base that they felt they had to play to. Um, that's one explanation. Another explanation is that that their political leadership contains the same anti-Muslim biases as lots of other people there, too. So I don't think we should give them a pass to say it's just instrumental. I think they, yeah. um, lots of them have demonstrated uh, you know, that that's what they believe as well. Uh, so there was an antagonistic relationship. and then, as soon as the NLD won and took power, you started to see NLD officials kind of asserting that space, pushing back. So uh, Yangon Chief Minister Min Thane made some comments about the the uh, the unnecessary nature of of uh, of Mabatha. And you know, Mabatha folks pushed back. Um, this became a public debate. and then it seemed like uh, the NLD government put pressure on, the Ministry of Religious Affairs, to put pressure on the monastic council to censure uh, Mabatha in that way. And, and we saw that happen twice, uh, the second time uh, where the monastic council said um, they have to uh, drop the Mabatha name. Right um, Now, it's still an antagonistic relationship, but, uh, but as I suggested today, I think since the escalation of the Rohingya crisis from End of 2016, or and and particularly throughout 2017, we've seen a convergence of views uh, between NLD and Mabatha in, in two particular ways. So one is uh, the securitization uh, of of the kind of Rohingya crisis as well. So talking about this in terms of a national security um, and sovereignty uh, argument, and then related to that is this this sort of knee-jerk criticism rejection of of the West, right, and of of Western kind of NGO ish. Uh, critiques of the country, and so we, we actually see everybody, right, government and Tamada and Mabatha, sort of sitting in the same in the same common space here. Um, the military relationship, I think, is pretty interesting. So I've I've always been uh, skeptical of of the most robust version of the like hidden hands argument to say that yeah, it's always been the military pulling the strings behind 969 and Mabatha, and that you know. Where through and these other monks are just pawns and the military have paid them off to do these things. I, I don't see a lot of evidence of that, actually. I see a lot of evidence that, um, the, of, of two things. One, during the USDP period, uh, before the NLD government came to power, um, the USDP government I don't think was uh, was encouraging or, or directly supporting mabatha but what they did was they created this enabling environment they declined to largely declined to prosecute uh, mabatha monks when they were saying horrible things they um, if you looked at the the kind of arrests after there was communal conflict you you know you'd see it it would turn out that there were you know dozens and dozens of muslims who were injured who were largely the victims but then you'd see more muslims being arrested than buddhists things like that so 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 there was a way in which what mabatha was doing was was kind of allowed then um but but there i don't think that there's a lot of evidence to kind of show that mabatha is like a creation of the military or a tool of the military in that way certainly what they've done has played well, in terms of what the military wants to do, dividing populations, demonizing Muslim populations, uh, demonizing the NLD, you know, things that calling them soft on security, all that works out well. Now, those dynamics started to change a little bit from the middle of 2017, where in Mabatha publications, the journals, we started to see uh, sort of more explicit um, recognition of the military, you know, lauding of the military. Uh, Senior General men online would get these glossy spreads in magazines. I mean, it was really a stark contrast for that. Uh, And and so you started to see these, we love the military, we love the Tatmadaw parades, happening incongruously in places like Mon State and Karen State, uh, but often organized by people who have these connections to Mabatha or or sort of similar groups. Now, does that mean that this is now a tool of of the military? No, I think this is about convergence of interests and, and sort of mutual benefit here. Um... And I think I think people who who sort of code Mabatha as like a tool of the military are inclined to see the military's hands directly in everything, right? Where I think that's we are probably in a much more diffuse field of, of like political and social action now, where the military still has lots of control and influence, but but doesn't have to have direct influence to really be benefiting from this.
0: This is uh this has been fascinating. So, Matt, where can we find out more about uh about these issues you've you've got a you've got a book buddhism politics and political thought in myanmar uh cambridge press um and this this research comes out of a a a, a big uh cooperative project is that right
1: yeah so this was funded by the economic and social research council of the uk when i was at oxford um so our, and and our research team includes uh dr makin mama g ethane and so on Wei. way and, and the four of us have um We've been, you know, writing and presenting papers. Uh, some of those are going to start to come out uh, in journals yeah. that have various aspects of this. It's eventually going to be uh, uh, in in book form. We're probably, you know, uh, six to six to twelve months out from from that point. Um, we've also we've also had uh, a a robust, I think, what for lack of a better term, we call it impact component. So policy orientation. We've been releasing mm. research papers, um, and uh, and the We've also done quite a few presentations like this and podcasts like this as well. So uh, you can, if you, if people are interested in is, finding is the some, is T Circle those...
0: the best place to so, go for a central clearinghouse? So T
1: Circle has some of our work. Um, T Circle or of course, Everybody Mi- should be yeah. going to T Circle to, for anything they want to find out on on Myanmar. What's um,
0: what's the website? Uh,
1: so it's it is a WordPress site. It's T- it's T Circle Oxford, where we we okay. keep the uh, the the nod to the Oxford heritage. Um, but uh, if if people are interested in more of the publications specifically from the Buddhist Nationalism Project, um, if you search on uh, Oxford and also the Department of Politics and International Relations, which is where we were situated, uh, and you know Buddhist Nationalism or Walton, you'll find our project page. Uh, it has okay. some ridiculous URL, but you'll find our project page with a lot of the writings that we've had and links to podcasts and things like that on it.
0: Well, on behalf of Andrea and myself, we thank you for coming to our campus, and uh, we hope you'll come back.
1: Absolutely, thank yeah. you. It's it's always a pleasure to come back to NIU, no matter how cold it is. <laughs> thank you. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Bye all.